Open your Bible to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Today I want to talk to you about the King of Hearts and Nations. The King, the King of Hearts and Nations. We are on the eve, well, I should say this. I was going to say we're on the eve of a very important election, but in reality, every election is very important. And if there's one thing that we should learn as we read and study the Bible, it's that our lives are not compartmentalized and segmented as separate whole parts. But our lives flow together, work together, everything in our life. The smallest, most minute, mundane of things to the great events that are stuck in our mind's eye and in our memory that we couldn't escape if we wanted to. Every part of our life and every part of our existence within us and without us and all around us is part of God's plan and purpose. And He put a smack dab in the middle of it so we can't say that one is meaningless but this has meaning. It all has meaning. It all has purpose. The king of hearts and nations. Do you know that God is a king? Do you know that Jesus Christ is a king? He is in fact called the king of kings. He is a lord. He is called the lord of lords. I'm going to read really several texts of Scripture to you, but we're going to really concentrate in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at a true story, a story of a nation. Jesus is not the king in every heart, but he is the king of all peoples and all nations. He indeed is the king of all things. So as we begin this conversation today, as we begin and we read the Scripture, I want to ask you a question I want you to think about. I want you to ponder as we talk. And the question is this, is Jesus the King of your heart? I don't, I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Is Jesus the King of your heart? Is Jesus the King of your heart? If Jesus is the king of our heart, that is going to be seen and that is going to be known. Not because we get everything right, because we're not going to get everything right. We're going to continue to fail, we're going to continue to fall, we're going to continue to falter. But we may fall and fail and falter. That doesn't mean Jesus is not the king of our heart. Whether we are able to live flawless lives doesn't determine whether Jesus is the king of our heart. But what is your desire? What do you want? When you think about life, when you look at the world, when you consider things, what, what is your greatest desire? We go back to 
the scripture we read during our giving. Do we desire to be rich as money or things? Is that our desire? Is that our greatest desire? If we lost all of our things, if we lost all of our money, would it devastate us? Wouldn't be pleasant, no doubt about that. But do we have a hope beyond what we possess? Do we have a hope beyond how big our bank account is? Do we have a hope beyond those outward material things? Do we have a hope that transcends this life and goes into eternity and never stops? Because that's the hope that we have in Christ. It transcends this life. It rises above and it never stops. Second Chronicles chapter 36. I'm going to begin reading in the 11th chapter. I mean in the 11th verse. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. The rebellion of a nation is the rebellion of its people. There's a lot of talk today about America and the state and the condition of our country. And we often speak of it and hear it spoken of in terms that point the finger and address the problem to a small group of people who reside in Washington, D.C. as if they're the problem. But church, I want to tell you something. They're not the problem. They are the symptom of the problem. Just as Zedekiah, the king, he was held accountable, and rightly so. 
He was held accountable by God. He was held accountable by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was held accountable, and rightly so, but he was simply a symptom of the sinfulness that permeated a nation. A nation in and of itself is not sinful unless we understand that a nation is made up of its people. The, the ground within the borders of America is not sinful, per se. It's not that we live on sinful earth, and that's causing us to be sinful. No, when we say our nation is wicked and sinful, what we really are saying is the people in our nation are sinful, and they are wicked. When we say our nation has left and turned its back on God, what we really need to understand is that the people have left and turned their back on God. But we need to be a little bit more specific even than that. Because in a nation, there are, if I can simplify it down to this, there are two types of people. In any nation, not just America, in any nation, there are those people that know God, and there are those people that do not know God. The people that do not know God, it is unreasonable for us to expect that they would be anything but sinful and wicked. Because that is their nature. And if we think they should be otherwise, we are being unreasonable. It's kind of like if I think my dog shouldn't bark, I'm kind of being unreasonable because my dog is a dog and dogs bark. So when people drive into my driveway or come to my door, the dog barks. And I can say, stop barking. And I could try to teach him and train him. And maybe I could do that. But you know what? There's still going to be that inclination. There's still going to be that impulse to want to bark because that's what dogs do. And sinners sin because they are sinners. So in every nation, there are those people who know God and those people who do not know God. And God is very specific when He directs Himself and He commands us. He commands all men to repent. But the remedy that He gives, He gives to His people. Because God knows that it is the people who know God in a nation that should be the salt and the light that influences the conditions. So when the salt loses its flavor, when the light is no longer shining, it has an impact on the world around us. The rebellion of a nation is the rebellion of its people. In these verses I just read from 2 Chronicles, it's the story of a nation and a people that would not humble themselves before God. This was a nation that was called God's possession. This was a nation, they were called God's people. There was an expectation. These are 
the people of God. This is a nation among nations that knows the true and living God, and there should be a difference. That applies today as well, not to the United States of America. That's not the nation that should know the difference. The United States of America is no different than any other nation. It's a secular nation. We can talk about its roots, its origins, its godly heritage. I'm I'm all about that. No, there's a nation within the nation. There's a nation within every nation. It's a holy nation. It's a holy nation that God Himself has raised up. It's called the church. The church is the holy nation. The church is the nation within the nation that should know the difference. So in this story of Israel, in this story of Judah, and and this people that would not humble themselves before God, here's what God says. The king did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not, he would not humble himself before God's word. He rebelled against the civil authority ordained by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God. Moreover, not just the king, not just the people at the very top, not just the the guy at top, but moreover, the leaders of the priests and the people. So this rebellion, this corruption, it... It didn't just stop at the head, it went all the way down. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more. And what was God's response? And God sent warnings to them by His messengers. Why? Because He had compassion. Do you know that God is doing that today? God is doing that today. All over this nation, all over the world, God is doing that. He's sending warnings. Who is hearing? Who is seeing? Who has righteous anger and righteous indignation because of the sin and the wicked rebellion of a people who is praying who is seeking the face of God that God would have mercy or are we too caught up with the distractions built into our lives and maybe we'll all go vote on Tuesday but at the end of the day it's like well it is what it is and we forget about the election, and we forget about all the mess, and we go back to our lives, and we immerse ourselves in our distractions, and we just close it out of our minds and out of our lives, and we busy ourselves with other things. But all the while, there's a nation full of people who are continuing to sin and rebel against God. And God is continuing to send His warnings in His compassion. He is continuing to proclaim His word and proclaim His truth. Just like He did with Judah. 
He sent warnings to them by his messengers because he had compassion. But here was the response of the people. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Now, if I wouldn't have read 2 Chronicles to you and told you this was about Judah some 2,500 years ago, you, you wouldn't even, this, this could be modern-day America right here. Who mocks God's messengers and despises His words and scoffs at His prophets. And this went on, the Bible says, until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, God gave them all into the hands of their enemies. The consequence of Judah's rebellion after many decades of God patiently enduring their wicked idolatry and sin was the Babylonian invasion and subsequent captivity for 70 years. And in that day and in that time when the prophet Jeremiah warned the people day after day and would have been killed had God not supernaturally spared his life. Jeremiah probably wished he could have been killed at some point, the things that they did to him. And in that context, many did not believe that God would actually allow them to be conquered and led into, into a long captivity. False prophets refused to humble themselves before God. They preached an ear-tickling message that pleased their leaders and pleased the people. And they told them what they wanted to hear instead of telling them what they needed to hear. And they used false words and false dreams to resist Jeremiah and to resist God. When God judges a nation, He is dealing with His people for their good and for His glory. When God judges a nation, He is bringing about justice, a just thing, but it's not just so justice can be executed. When God deals with a nation, when He judges a nation, He is dealing with His people because ultimately, here's what I believe, you may agree or disagree, but I believe ultimately what happens to a nation is going to ultimately be determined by what God's people do. As God's people... As the church begins to compromise truth, as the church begins to water down the gospel, as the church begins to become more concerned about the praise of men than the praise of God, when the church decides it wants to be more popular with the state, more popular with the media, more popular with the royalty of our day, more in tune with the world than with God, that's when problems begin. And those things don't happen overnight. We have not arrived where we are overnight. Neither did Judah. It literally took centuries for Judah to come to the place. In fact, in 606 B.C., when 
King Nebuchadnezzar first invaded and lay siege to Jerusalem, it was 122 years previous to that. It was 100 years previous to that when the northern kingdom was led captivity, led, led captive, led away captive by the Assyrians. And they came against Jerusalem then, but God spared Jerusalem and he spared Judah. And he gave them another 134 years of warnings to turn from their wickedness and to turn from their sin. But it came to the place where there was no remedy, and so for their good, God judged them and did what he did. Now, it might not have seemed good to them. It no doubt did not seem good to them in the midst of it. We have the luxury of reading this and looking back into history and seeing how God took those horrendous events and worked them together for good. They ultimately led to the coming of Jesus. They ultimately have given us much of what we have today. But if we were living in the midst of that and we were watching people being murdered by Babylonians and we were watching our city being destroyed and we were watching the temple being burnt down, and all that we hold near and dear crushed and destroyed, we wouldn't say, well, you know, this is really good. We would have thought, this is horrible. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. We talked about this very thing today in Sunday school. This is God's promise given to us in his word. It doesn't say he works all things together for good, period, for everybody. There were a lot of people that suffered under the Babylonians. It wasn't good for them. King Zedekiah was a wicked man. He was wicked and rebellious. He was an evil king. And when they drug him to Babylon... And they murdered his sons in front of him and then put his eyes out because the king of Babylon wanted to make sure the last thing Zedekiah ever saw with his natural eyes were his sons being killed. People, that's, that's cruelty. That's cruel. That's not unusual cruelness. That is what every human is capable of apart from the grace of God. If that offends you, if the thought of what the Babylonians did to Zedekiah and his sons, if that's offensive to you, if that's disturbing to you, you think, oh my God, how could anyone do that? Listen, if you have that thought, how could anyone do that? That's, that's horrible. That's the grace of God. That, that's your attitude toward that level of cruelty and, and pain. You don't think God is good? The fact that this world has not come apart at the seams and we're all at each other's throats killing one another, it is the grace of God. We can look at creations by Hollywood 
Take The Walking Dead, for instance. I don't know how many of you watch it. It's been years since I have watched it. I have watched a few episodes of it. You think, oh, that's ridiculous. It's so, you know. It doesn't even have to be that. It could be any of these shows now. The level of cruelty and violence that is portrayed on the screen that would have only been encountered on a battlefield. For many centuries, the only place human beings would encounter that level of cruelty and violence and graphic destruction would be on a battlefield. Now you just have to flip your TV on and you can watch, you can watch it in any time period you want, from Vikings to, to knights in England to mythical zombies walking the earth. Who thinks up things like that? Depraved human beings do. Who watches stuff like that? <laughs> A lot of people do. And think about it, church. We call it entertainment. Now, this is not a message about what you watch on television. Not at all. What I'm saying is, my point in there is this. If you don't think humanity is depraved, if you don't think humanity is capable of the most cruel and unusual things you can imagine and beyond, you need to think again. And the only reason that's not the rule in the world we live in is because God in His grace has constrained human nature to the degree that we live in what we call a civilized world. But you have to really wonder, really, how civilized it is. We're just shielded from much of what happens, even though it's right out there for all of us to see instantaneously. We are still shielded, for the most part, of the reality of what is taking place in our world. We see that God dealt with Israel in a way that he would bring judgment to a nation. But in bringing judgment, he would not bring it without providing hope to his people. The hope God gives to his people is always bound up in the glory of his name. Therefore, our hope is in him only. And our hope is always according to his plan and his purpose. This is what we see consistently in God's dealing with Israel. One of the clearest examples of this is how God judged Judah for its sin while promising to give them a future and a hope. God promised His thoughts toward them were of peace, not of evil. And this was the message from God to His people through the prophet Jeremiah. He's writing a letter to exiles living in Babylon. And in the letter, He tells them, God says to you, that his thoughts towards you are not evil, but peace. But wasn't it God who just destroyed our city? Yes. Seemed pretty evil. Yeah, it could seem that way. Only problem is you deserved it. Because for hundreds of years, God has begged you to repent has sent you messengers, has sent you warnings, but you hardened your heart against God. So God did the only thing he could do. It's kind of like the kid 
who won't obey and won't obey, and the parent doesn't want to have to spank them, but it comes down to the place where you got to do what you got to do. Because sometimes that's what is necessary for them to learn and understand and be turned. Listen to the letter God penned through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. Now keep in mind, nobody wanted to believe that God was really that God really did this. Well, he did it, okay, but it's it's gonna turn real quick. He's gonna defeat the Babylonians. We're all coming back home. It's all gonna be good because there was an interim period, 20 years, while Jerusalem was still intact. And instead of thanking God that the city was spared and humbling themselves before God, they hardened themselves to the word of God, and they hardened themselves to the king of Babylon, and they said, look, God's going to give us this king. God will defeat him, and we're going to be spared. And the prophet says, no, that's not how it's going to happen. You're going to all end up dead. The city's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be your worst case scenario is fixing to happen here. But they wouldn't listen. So here's what God writes to the people in exile. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1. That Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to, their, to your dreams which you caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, after 70 years, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. After 70 years... Now, what if you were desperate for an answer to a really desperate situation in your life? God says, hey, listen, just want to let you know, I put you in this desperate situation. And after 70 years, I'm going to answer your prayer. 
Some of us would go, 70 years? I'm going to be dead in 70 years. What do I do? Well, what do you do? You do exactly what God says. You build houses. You plant gardens. You live in those houses. You eat those gardens. You produce children. You give your daughters and your sons in marriage. You encourage them to pray for the peace of the city. Well, I'm never going to get out of this city. I'm going to die here. That's all right. Pray for the peace of the city so that your children and your children's children can go back and, and be carried back to where you came from so that they can be restored. Become the stepping stone that you need to be so that your children and your children's children can experience the restoration that you won't experience. Oh, we don't like that. How are we going to see a nation restored? How was Israel going to see? How was Judah going to see restoration? Well, it was going to take 70 years. And a lot of those people that were carried into captivity were never going to come back from captivity because they would die there. So the question becomes, what do we do in the meantime? Will you do what God has told you to do? You pray you do everything you can do to ensure that your children and your children's children will experience the restoration that you will not. Because you are justly and righteously paying for, suffering the consequences of chronic wickedness, rebellion, and sinfulness over many, 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 many many decades. Do you think that is unique only to Israel? Do you think things like that only happened back 2,500 years ago? No. We watch our TV shows and we watch period pieces from Viking eras and, and, and 200 years ago and 900 years ago, and we fantasize about what it would be like to live in those times and, and experience those things, but we have no grasp on the reality of what hell that would have been. And yet, we're living in a world today where the very same things are transpiring and taking place. It just so happens we have mobile devices and big screen TVs and live in homes with conditioned air and running water and we can flip a switch and make the lights come on so our life is much easier but the sinfulness and the wickedness and the idolatry that brought judgment to judah is the same sinfulness wickedness and idolatry that is bringing judgment on our nation today what do we do do we keep calling the people in our cities' names, to keep complaining about them and voting year after year and not seeing any real difference? Should we keep doing that? Mm, maybe not. When God judges his people, it is to discipline them in his love, not condemn them in his wrath. 
1 Corinthians 11.32, Paul writes this, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is why Peter writes that judgment begins at the house of God. He writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You don't want to think about it. You don't want to experience it. Because as horrendous and as cruel and as hard as anything can be that happens in this world, those who will not obey the gospel of God have something that is so much worse you can't imagine. What should we do as the people of God? We better start praying. We better keep praying. We better start repenting. We better keep repenting because we're not less guilty. We've just been given grace. We're not less guilty. We're not less wicked than that presidential candidate We're not less wicked than that murderer. We're not less wicked than that pedophile. We're not less wicked than that idolater. No, we are just as wicked, but we were given grace. We are just as wicked, but God intervened in your life, in my life, and derailed me from a path of destruction and for some unknown, unexplainable reason, gave us life in his son. God disciplines us as a people. He does it nationally. He does it corporately as his church. He does it personally as his children. In a demonstration of our legitimacy and his love, and also for our profit. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 reflects this truth that God in his love disciplines his children to produce in them the fruits of righteousness. He does this for their good gain. He says, I do this for their profit. And he also does it for the glory of God. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God will remove what can be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken may remain. The Bible says that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for he, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth 
But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but I shake heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Christ is the king reigning now over all other kings and all other kingdoms. Christ is not a king who will reign one day. Christ is is the king who is reigning now. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Lest you are tempted to think that some future event, future reality, because it's in the book of Revelation, when Jesus appeared to his disciples before he ascended to the Father, he said to them, all, A-L-L, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. All authority. Not some authority, not one day authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 give us this assurance. It says this, all things have been put in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. We do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. You look around and you see death and destruction and you say, where is God in all of this? Stop looking at the death and the destruction. Know what the scripture has declared to us. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. All things have been put in subjection under him. Yeah, but I can't see it. But you can see Jesus because God has revealed him to you in the scripture. He revealed him to you when he came to this earth. Jesus has made himself known openly to the whole creation. Seeing is not believing. Knowing is believing. I can know what I cannot see. Therefore, our faith is not in what we can see, but in what we know. You may not see all things under him, but know that all things are. God has given us his word, not to see all things, but to know the things both seen and unseen. God has given us his word that we may know him. He is the king. He is ruling now, and his kingdom is unshakable. Regardless of what happens to America, now or in the future, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ is unshakable, and it is eternal. Let's get ready. I would invite the worship team to come as we get ready to come to the table. He invites us to this table to affirm his covenant with us that is established in his body that was broken for us.
and his blood that was poured out for us. We do this in remembrance of him, proclaiming his death even until he comes again. Christians, come to the table. Here's my charge to you. I charge you to know who you are, to know how God deals with his children, and to trust and obey him in all things. Know that you are God's children. You are not the world. You are called to be salt and light. Know that you are God's children. You are not the world. You are called to be humble in prayer and obedience with the promise that God will hear from heaven and heal our land. Know that you are God's children and that you are not the world and that you are called to humble prayer and humble obedience, that you are called a holy nation. You are called a special treasure. You are called to show forth his praise. Know that you are God's children. You are not the world and that you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, go in the assurance of grace and peace and power in Jesus Christ. Go boldly with humility to this world. Worship Him, serve Him, proclaim Him, and make Him known. Be salt and light. Pray and seek His face. Trust and obey and give honor and glory to your King, regardless of the cost. Amen.